Hello, listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in our show notes, including our toll-free number, where you can leave a message, ideas for future episodes, or tell us about events, campaigns, or victories in your union. Please check out Life on Record. In the 1820s, American cotton growers and land speculators established slaveholding settlements in Texas, a province of newly independent Mexico. They clashed with the Mexican government after it abolished slavery in 1829 and the next year enacted laws to stop the Anglos from importing slaves under the ruse that they were indentured. In 1836, at San Jacinta, they defeated an army led by Mexico's president, General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana. Captured in battle, Santa Ana bought his release by ceding independence to the province. It became the Republic of Texas, whose president, Sam Houston, had earlier been governor of Tennessee. Almost immediately, Texas began to petition for annexation to the United States and in 1845 it became the 28th state. The next year, Congress declared war on Mexico, and by fall of 1847, U.S. troops occupied Mexico City. In return for peace, the Americans demanded the northern half of Mexico, from California to what is now western Texas. It was transferred to the United States in February of 1848, under the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. The treaty stipulated that Mexicans living on this land would be treated as full-fledged U.S. citizens. Very quickly, however, the Americans set up special courts that reviewed Mexicans' land claims and nullified them by the hundreds. In New Mexico, about 3.7 million acres were confiscated. In California, the Southern Pacific Railroad wound up with 11 million acres. In Arizona, U.S. companies took over the copper and silver mines, bringing in white workers and a two-tier wage system, one rate for whites and a lower Mexican wage for people of color. The sharpest changes occurred in California, the site of a gold rush. Just a week before the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was signed, a mechanic struck gold on a construction site at Sutter's Mill in the New Helvetia colony near modern-day Sacramento. New Helvetia belonged to the German-Swiss entrepreneur John Sutter, who oversaw a gigantic wheat farm, a distillery, a hat factory, a blanket factory, a tannery, and various other businesses. In 1855, the U.S. Army forced California Indians 
into five reservations where they would supposedly feed themselves by growing wheat, but the farm's too small to support everyone. The Indian population fell from 150,000 in 1848 to 30,000 in 1860. The new Anglo elite in California dreaded Mexican resistance. In July 1856, Los Angeles raised four vigilante companies to guard against Mexican revolution. After a California crowd liberated a man from the city jail. Another alarm went out the following year when a young man named Juan Flores escaped from San Quentin prison, organized a band of more than 50 Californio, and skirmished with Anglo lawmen. Again, Los Angeles raised vigilantes after an 11-day campaign. They captured Flores and most of his men and hanged him and three others before delivering the rest to legal authorities. The annexation of northern Mexico intensified the national debate over slavery. In 1848, the House of Representatives endorsed a proposal to ban slavery from the lands annexed under the Guadalupe Hidalgo Treaty, but the measure failed in the Senate. New York Senator William Seward hit the nail on the head in a famous speech on the Raising Discord. It is an irrepressible conflict between opposing and enduring forces, and it means that the United States must and will, sooner or later, become either entirely a slaveholding nation are entirely a free labor nation. Congress tried to put the conflict to rest with a package of laws known as the Compromise of 1850. California joined the Federal Union as the 16th free state and the number of slave states remained at 15. New Mexico and Utah were recognized as formal U.S. territories without any prohibitions on slavery. Slave trading was banned from Washington, D.C., but not slavery itself. Congress pledged not to interfere with the interstate slave trade. It also passed a Fugitive Slave Act that commissioned federal marshals to hunt down runaway slaves and set up special courts to facilitate the enslavement of anyone who got caught. In defiance of the Fugitive Slave Act, black communities vigilance committees stepped up rescue activities and more and more whites lent a hand. In one famous incident in 1851, abolitionists in the rural town of Christiana, Pennsylvania battled a posse of slaveholders and federal agents who arrived with warrants for four runaways. 31 blacks and five whites were arrested for this incident. Tensions escalated in 1854 when Congress passed the Kansas-Nebraska Act that called for popular sovereignty. Each state would decide for itself whether to be slave or free. This plan enraged free soilers and anti-slavery factions among the Democrats, Whigs, and Know-Nothings. In the summer of 1854, they came together to found the Republican Party advancing the slogan, free soil, free labor, and free men. The new party called for an end to slavery's expansion 
and to federal laws supporting its existence. In May 1856, the violence penetrated the halls of Congress. A few days after the Republican Senator Charles Sumner of Massachusetts denounced slaveholders for the rape of Kansas, South Carolina's Democratic Congressman Preston Brooks beat Sumner almost to death on the floor of the Senate. In the South, slaves' resistance heightened. Group escapes, plots, and mutinies were reported in Missouri and Virginia in 1850, North Carolina, Texas, and Virginia in 1851, Virginia again in 1852, Louisiana in 1853 and 1854, and Maryland, Mississippi, and Louisiana in 1855. By the end of the year, every slave-holding state but Delaware was rife with news of slave riots and conspiracies, some of which involved white abolitionists. Tijonas also aided rebel slaves. In September of 1856, authorities in Colorado County, Texas, expelled Tijanos for helping to arm more than 200 slaves conspiring to revolt. The Austin State Gazette reported that month that the lower class of the Mexican population are incendiaries in any country where slaves are held. In 1857, the U.S. Supreme Court gave its seal of approval to slavery and further galvanized the opposition. When Abraham Lincoln's election threatened slavery, the South's master class confidently decided to break away from the Federal Union of States. South Carolina succeeded in late December 1860. The rest of the Lower South soon followed. Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, and Texas. In February 1861, the secessionists founded the Confederate States of America later joined by Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, and Arkansas. In mid-April, South Carolina bombarded the U.S. garrison at Fort Sumter in Charleston's harbor. On April 15th, the President called for volunteers to fight the Confederacy. Within days, troops were skirmishing along its northern borders. Confederate leaders fully expected to win the war. Since slaves did much of the work, many white men were free to fight, and most had received military training in the large militia southern states maintained. What the Confederates did not anticipate was that slaves would mobilize for the South's defeat. By running away, by sabotaging production, by working and fighting for the Union Army, slaves doomed the Confederacy. If the Southern leaders did not foresee that, Lincoln did when his Emancipation Proclamation declared the Confederacy's slaves forever free and ordered that freedmen be received into the Union forces. The Civil War was the bloodiest conflict in U.S. history. It claimed the lives of 618,000 troops and uncounted numbers of civilians, and maimed hundreds of thousands more. New military technology, the Winchester repeating rifle, and the Gatling revolving machine gun produced some of the, this carnage, but most died of the complications of mass warfare. Two-thirds of the casualties came from disease, 
hunger, or sheer exhaustion. Military camps were rife with mumps, measles, malaria, and typhoid. Prisoners of war were packed into stockades with little food and less care, and died of starvation or disease by the thousands. Yet out of this carnage came one of the most glorious chapters in U.S. history, the eradication of chateau slavery. African Americans argued from the start that the Union War against the Confederate succession would not be won unless it became a war against slavery. As well, never wound a snake but kill it, declared the Underground Railroad activist Harriet Tubman. Free black men were among the first to form volunteer companies when Lincoln called for troops to fight the Confederacy. For the most part, however, African Americans were turned away. As Union casualties mounted and Confederate victories multiplied, however, the Lincoln administration had no choice but to change its stand toward slavery and the enlistment of black troops. Only then did the Union start to win the war. Working people had a major hand in transforming the Union's war from a fight against succession into a fight against slavery. Slaves played the leading role. As soon as the war started, they seized every opportunity to flee their masters and make their way to Union army camps. These refugees from bondage numbered about a half million by the end of 1862. In recognition of this assistance, several Union generals declared the refugees free by military order. And in the summer of 1862, Congress proclaimed that all slaves who escaped from Confederate masters would be forever free. Following the Emancipation Proclamation, about 186,000 black men entered the U.S. armed forces. They made up nearly 35% of all troops enlisted by the Union during the final two years of the war. Of the black troops, about 134,000, 72%, had been slaves when the war began. African-American regiments served in the war's most vicious battles and distinguished themselves for bravery under fire. Harriet Tubman, again, was exceptional. After a stint in Florida nursing Union soldiers sick with dysentery, she returned to South Carolina and from 1863 through 1864, she headed a corps of pilot and scouts supporting guerrilla raids deep into the rebel parts. Dressed as a soldier, wearing pants, carrying a rifle, Tubman personally led many of these raids. A notice in the Boston Commonwealth dated July 10, 1863, reported a fray up the Cambahee River. The federal government itself did not make service easy. Recruiters promised black soldiers the regular pay of $13 a month plus $3.50 for clothing. But Congress authorized the same pay for black troops as for black workers. $10 a month, less $3 deducted for clothing. Congress finally retroactive equal pay to free black recruits in June 1864 and to ex-slaves in March 1865. The Emancipation Proclamation and the Army of black troops electrified African-Americans who were enslaved. 
They fled bondage and made for Union army camps in ever greater numbers. And those unable to flee stepped up their sabotage against the Confederacy. Free labor also played an important role in the Union's war against slavery. From the start, the Union army was mainly composed of laboring men, small farmers, and wage workers. When Lincoln called for volunteers, in some cases, the members of local labor unions signed up as a group. The federal government estimated at the end of the war that up to 750,000 men had left industrial jobs for the Union Army. Wage earners, both industrial workers and farmhands, served in higher proportions than any other sector of Northern society and composed more than 90% of a great many Union regiments. White workers in the North were by no means unanimous in opposition to the Confederacy. That was quite clear in the federal elections of fall of 1862. The Democratic Party, which advocated peace with the Confederacy, gained congressional seats as pro-war Republicans lost ground. In the minds of white workers, the Emancipation Proclamation sealed the idea that the Republicans were going to free the slaves to turn them loose to overrun the North and enter into competition with the white laboring masses. This fueled the old resentments against African Americans and the Republican Party, both of which came to a head after the federal government instituted a military draft in March 1863. Draftees could avoid service by paying a $300 fee or hiring others to take their places, and many rich men exercised these options. When poor men were drafted, however, they had no choice but to serve. In July 1863, anger at this inequality combined with racial hostility to spark a bloody four-day riot in New York City where white mobs terrorized black communities with arson, assaults, lynchings, and attacked the property of wealthy white Republicans. Estimates of the number of people killed in the riots range from 400 to 1,000. For the most part, however, Northern workers supported the war and their determination to see it through often grew deeper and stronger after the Emancipation Proclamation was issued in January 1863. That April, the Confederacy collapsed the 13th Amendment outlawing slavery everywhere in the United States, meanwhile moved inexorably towards ratification. On December 18, 1865, it was added to the Constitution, and slavery was entirely banished from U.S. soil. Though everyone who backed the Union's war contributed to the revolutionary event, it originated in the wartime actions of slaves themselves. The Confederacy's defeat raised two key questions. On what terms would the rebel states be readmitted to the Union? What would happen to the four million African Americans who had been slaves when the war began? Clear.
please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening.